We're going to be in Judges chapter 20 this morning. Let me just say, first and foremost, thank you for returning after the very challenging text last week. We're in Judges 20 this morning. We've got this week and next week, and then we will have finished the book of Judges. Some of you are mourning. Some of you are screaming out of celebration. Last week, we did study, in my opinion, the most challenging story for sure, outside of the crucifixion, in all of Scripture. And today's sermon in Judges 20 is basically Israel's response to what took place last week in Judges chapter 19, when the Levite took his concubine, chopped her up, and sent her out throughout the nation of Israel. Remember, we learned that one of the reasons he did this was a call to action. This was a declaration of war. He wanted all of Israel to know that what these worthless men of Gibeah did has to be dealt with. They must be held accountable. So Judges 20 is the response to what happened in Judges 19. So as we work our way through Judges 20 today, you're going to notice three observations. Number one, you're going to see a united Israel. Number two, you're going to see a family feud. And then number three, a costly victory. A united Israel, a family feud, and a costly victory. So look here with me at Judges chapter 20. We're told in verse 1, all of the people of Israel came out. And the narrator gives this phrase from Dan to Beersheba, which doesn't mean much to us, except that we realize Dan is the northernmost part of Israel. Beersheba is the furthest point south in all of Israel. So when the narrator says, from Dan to Beersheba, he is saying all of the nation of Israel is involved in this. It would be as if we said, from Maine all the way down to Florida. Everyone is involved. Everyone wants to basically deal with this great tragedy. The narrator is pointing out to us in these early verses that Israel is united around this. If you look at verse 1 and verse 8 and verse 11, you see the phrase, as one man. The narrator wants us to see that this event has greatly united the people of Israel. Now, in our country today, we are more polarized and fragmented, perhaps than any other time, at least in my lifetime. But you can remember 21 years ago today how united we were when the planes hit the World Trade Center towers. For whatever reason, in times of great tragedy, people come together and they are united. And so we see in this story, after the Levite shipped off his concubine all over Israel, that the entire nation was swept up in this tragedy. They wanted to know, why did this happen? So the text tells us in verse 2 that all of the tribes and all of the chiefs showed up and 400,000 men drew the sword. Look specifically at verses 4 through 7. The text says, And the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and said, 
I came to Gibeah that belongs to Benjamin, I and my concubine, to spend the night. And the leaders of Gibeah rose against me, surrounded the house against me by night. They meant to kill me, and they violated my concubine, and she is dead. So I took hold of my concubine and cut her in pieces and sent her throughout all the country of the inheritance of Israel. For they have committed abomination and outrage in Israel. Behold, you people of Israel, all of you, give your advice and counsel here. What's interesting about the Levites' description of what happened and what we actually read in Judges 19 is that there's some key differences between how he explains the story and how the narrator explained the story in Judges 19. For instance, there's no mention whatsoever that his servants actually encouraged him to stay in a non-Israelite place. There's also no mention of the fact that he was about to go off and leave the next morning and leave his concubine sitting there on the porch. He also says in Judges 20 that it was the leaders of Gibeah who approached the house. When we're told in Judges 19 that it's the worthless men of Gibeah. We're also told, or not told, that the Levite seizes his concubine and throws her out to the men of Gibeah. In Judges 19, there's no mention that they wanted to kill the Levite. They simply wanted to violate him and abuse him. So there are some discrepancies between what the Levite is willing to tell his fellow countrymen and what the narrator tells us in Judges chapter 19. There's no mention of the cold and heartless way that he just asked his concubine to get up so that they could go home. No mention of any of these things in Judges 20. But nevertheless, there is enough horrid detail, even in his account, for Israel to rise up and say... This must be dealt with. They're ready to fight. They want justice. Gibeah must pay for what they have done. But what's interesting about these early verses of chapter 20 is Yahweh's not consulted. He's referenced, but he's never consulted. So the people of Israel, they don't gather and offer sacrifices before the Lord and ask for him to speak to them about what should be done about the tribe of Benjamin. They just take it into their own hands. They do what we have seen throughout the book of Judges. They do whatever is right according to their own eyes. At least in Judges 1, the very beginning of our study, months ago, at least Israel inquired of the Lord in Judges 1 before they got ready to attack the Canaanites. But here in Judges 20, they simply discern his will through the casting of lots. And what's most ironic about this story, this is the first time in the entire book that Israel is united. All of the judges that came before could never fully unite the people of Israel like the tragedy regarding this Levite and his concubine. If Israel would have been faithful in Judges chapter 1 to completely drive out all of the Canaanites, they might not even be in this position to begin with. But they violate God's clear commands. Remember Deuteronomy chapter 20, 16 and 17. But in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you, for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction. 
the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded you. The whole reason the book of Judges is needed is because they violated what God had clearly told them to do when they entered into these Canaanite territories. Wipe them completely out. And we learned as we moved from one judge to the next that with each successive judge, Israel got more and more corrupt and they were engaged in more and more sin. And now that they're unified, guess who they're unified against? Themselves. They're not unified over a foreign Canaanite power. They're unified against one of their own tribes, the tribe of Benjamin. So instead of wiping out these foreign nations, Israel unifies itself to wipe out one of its own. It's sad that this is the only thing that could unify God's people. But number two, we see in this story a family feud. Not the television show, but a true family feud between all of Israel and the tribe of Benjamin. So the tribes of Israel, they go to Benjamin and they say, bring out these worthless men of Gibeah. And Benjamin's response is, no, we're not going to do this. Not only do they say no, but they're ready to fight and defend their own people. Even this vile and oppressive and graphic behavior that these worthless men of Gibeon committed, they are going to defend and fight for them. So we're told that the tribe of Benjamin musters up 26,000 men from their various cities And the town of Gibeah itself brings forth 700 left-handed men. Now, left-handed throughout Judges and throughout the Old Testament, generally a sign of weakness. But suddenly, if you have 700 left-handed men within your army, it becomes a strength. It becomes something that the enemy is not prepared for. And the narrator tells us that these 700 men were excellent with a slingshot. So good that they could hit a hair. So they muster up these 26,000 men with these 700 skilled warriors from Gibeah. And they are ready to take on the 400,000 men of Israel. So the feud is now set. The Israelites, representing all of the tribes except Benjamin, 400,000 strong against 26,700 men against the tribe of Benjamin. Now, on paper, this is clearly an unfair fight. But the narrator breaks down this feud into three battles. The first battle is verses 19 through 23. The second battle is verses 24 to 28. Then we have the extended description of the third battle in verses 29 to 48. So let's look through these battles. Look at 18 through 23. The people of Israel arose and went up to Bethel and inquired of God, who shall go up first for us to fight against the people of Benjamin? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up first. Then the people of Israel rose in the morning and encamped against Gibeah. And the men of Israel went out to fight against Benjamin. And the men of Israel drew up the battle line against them at Gibeah. 
The people of Benjamin came out of Gibeah and destroyed on that day 22,000 men of the Israelites. But the people, the men of Israel, took courage and again formed the battle line in the same place where they had formed it on the first day. And the people of Israel went up and wept before the Lord until the evening. And they inquired of the Lord, Shall we again draw near to fight against our brothers, the people of Benjamin? And the Lord said, Go up against them again. How is it possible that 400,000 men can lose to 26,700? It doesn't make sense on paper. We're not really told how it's possible. We do know, however, in verse 18, that at least Israel does inquire of the Lord, who should they send? But they were asking the wrong question. It should not have been, who do we send? But should we go? Well, God gives them an answer. He says, Judah will go first. I hope you can remember your Old Testament trivia here because this is significant. If you go back to Genesis chapter 44 in the story of Joseph, all of the brothers head into Israel to seek relief from the famine. And Joseph secretly puts his silver cup in Benjamin's bag. And as they start traveling home, they go and chase him down. And Joseph brings them all back and says, Your brother Benjamin, he must stay for what he has done and be my servant. And do you remember in that story who steps up to take the place of Benjamin? It's Judah. He steps up and says, I will take the place of my brother Benjamin because if Benjamin does not return home to his father, my father will literally die of a broken heart, basically. But in this story, Judah does not step up to defend Benjamin, but rather to fight against Benjamin. Do you see how sin has caused the nation of Israel to begin acting in a way that is contrary to how they've acted in the past. After Israel loses this first battle, they do go before the Lord. They weep and they inquire of the Lord. In verse 23, they ask the question, should we go back and fight against our brothers in battle? That's key. At least after the first battle, They're admitting that they're fighting against their own flesh and blood. The narrator is giving us a clue here that this is, in fact, a family feud. And in round two, we have another Israelite loss. This time, it's 18,000 men. But the response of Israel after the second defeat is more intentional. Look at verses 26 to 28. Then all the people of Israel, the whole army went up and came to Bethel and wept. They sat there before the Lord and fasted that day until evening and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And the people of Israel inquired of the Lord for the Ark of the Covenant of God was there in those days. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, ministered before it in those days, saying, Shall we go out once more to battle against our brothers? the people of Benjamin, or shall we cease? And the Lord said, Go up, for tomorrow I will give them into your hand. The Israelites are a a little bit more intentional this time. Not only do they weep and mourn, but they fast. They 
make offerings before the Lord. They even ask that the Ark of the Covenant be brought to Bethel because normally the Ark of the Covenant is in Shiloh. So what has happened here? The Israelites bring the Ark of the Covenant to Bethel somewhat as if it's a good luck charm. Maybe if we bring the Ark of the Covenant to Bethel, God will be with us. They even bring the grandson of Aaron, the high priest, along with them. And after being defeated these first two times, it seems like the third time is the charm. This time, Israel is going to do things the right way, and God is going to provide victory. And in fact, he does. His response is, go up, for tomorrow I will give them into your hand. So the first time when they ask, God says, Judah goes first. But now, he says, go up against them, and I will give you victory. Do you see throughout this story how sin and ignorance and disobedience of God has completely derailed what God wanted to accomplish through his people? They were defeated. They were conquered. All because they did not first seek after the Lord. And because sin has established such deep roots within the people of God, they are attacking each other instead of attacking the Canaanites like God had originally told them to do. Does this sound familiar? In 2022, certainly the church would never attack itself from within. It's supposed to be a joke. If you haven't been on evangelical social media recently, this is exactly what the church of Jesus Christ does, at least in America. We attack ourselves. We belittle one another. We discourage one another. We call out others to make ourselves feel superior. We fight over second rank and third rank and fourth rank doctrines which are not essential to gospel partnership. And we draw the line on secondary and tertiary matters. And you know what it does for us? It further divides the bride of Christ. And the lost world around us is watching. And they are saying, why would I want to be a part of a fellowship? Or even universally the church of Jesus Christ when they fight in this way. The most effective way, brothers and sisters, to fight the enemy and attract lost people to the cause of Christ is for us to pursue holiness. That is what draws people to Christ. Well, of course, we know it's the Holy Spirit. But it's also the way that believers live their lives. When we fight with fellow Christians over secondary and tertiary issues, we fuel Satan. And we turn lost people off to the very gospel that they need. In this story, there are no Canaanites signing up to be a part of the nation of Israel because they are seeing the way that these tribes treat one another. Israel is so distracted throughout the book of Judges from what it was that God initially set out for them to do. That the whole book is just chronicling their continuous disobedience. 
their continuous lack of repentance. And it manifests itself most fully in this text when the people of God turn against themselves and destroy themselves from within. Finally, we also see in this passage a costly victory. In verse 29... We have this detailed description of the third battle between Israel and the Benjaminites. Look at 29 to 34. So Israel set men in ambush around Gibeah. And the people of Israel went up against the people of Benjamin on the third day and set themselves in array against Gibeah as at other times. And the people of Benjamin went out against the people and were drawn away from the city. And as at other times, they began to strike And kill some of the people in the highways, one of which goes up to Bethel, and the other to Gibeah. And in the open country, about 30 men of Israel and the people of Benjamin said, They are routed before us as at the first. But the people of Israel said, Let us flee and draw them away from the city to the highways. And all the men of Israel rose up out of their place and set themselves in array at Baal Tamar. And the men of Israel who were in ambush rushed out of their place for Marah Geba. Verse 34. And there came against Gibeah 10,000 chosen men out of all Israel. And the battle was hard, but the Benjamites did not know that disaster was close upon them. The tide turns. Here's what Israel does. They set an ambush and they draw Gibeah out of their town. And when they draw them out of the town, another group comes in behind and sets the city on fire. And when the men of Gibeah turn around, they realize we can't go back home or we'll be defeated. And if they keep moving forward, they'll be defeated as well. Look at this detailed description beginning in 38. Now the appointed signal between the men of Israel and the men in the main ambush was that when they made a great cloud of smoke rise up out of the city, the men of Israel should turn in battle. Now Benjamin had begun to strike and kill about 30 men of Israel. They said, surely they are defeated before us as in the first battle. But when the signal began to rise out of the city in a column of smoke, The Benjaminites looked behind them, and behold, the whole of the city went up in smoke to heaven. Then the men of Israel turned, and the men of Benjamin were dismayed, for they saw that disaster was close upon them. Therefore they turned their backs before the men of Israel in the direction of the wilderness, but the battle overtook them. And those who came out of the cities were destroying them in their midst, surrounding the Benjaminites. They pursued them and trod them down from Nohah as far as opposite Gibeah on the east. 18,000 men of Benjamin fell, all of them men of valor. And they turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Rimmon. 5,000 men of them were cut down in the highways. They were pursued hard to get them. And 2,000 of them, and I just lost my place. It's just tragic when that happens. Bear with me. And 2,000 of them were struck down. So all who fell that day of Benjamin were 25,000 men who drew the sword. All of them men of valor. But 600 men turned and fled toward the wilderness 
to the rock of Ramon and remained at the rock of Ramon four months. And the men of Israel turned back against the people of Benjamin, struck them with the edge of the sword, the city, men, and beasts, and all that they found, and all the towns that they found, they set on fire. You know why this is a costly victory? Because the narrator gives us the numbers. Look with me closely. In verse 44, 18,000 Benjaminite soldiers fell. In verse 45, a total of 7,000. That makes a total of 25,000 soldiers from Benjamin were killed that day. And only a mere 600 were able to escape. Think back to Israel. In the first battle, we're told 22,000 Israelites. In the second battle, 18,000 Israelites. In the third battle, 30 Israelites killed. That's 25,000 from the tribe of Benjamin, and that's 47,000 men total destroyed from within, fighting one another. Who's the foreign enemy in this passage? There's not one. Israel has defeated themselves. There are no Jebusites. There are no Parasites. There are no Canaanites, Philistines. None of them. The Israelites have defeated themselves. This is a costly victory brought about by disobedience. What do we do with this story? What do we take away from this? It's very, very simple. We are seeing in Judges 20 the full consequences of everyone in Israel doing what was right in their own eyes. And when we do what is right in our own eyes and we ignore the commandments of God and his teachings, it leads to death. That's what we find in this passage, death. How do I know this? Genesis chapter 3, verse 3. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Verse 6 says this. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to what? To the eyes. And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Adam and Eve did what was right in their own eyes in Genesis 3, the same way that we see Israel doing what was right in its own eyes here in Genesis, excuse me, in Judges 20. Adam and Eve experienced death for their sin, and forever cast out of the Garden of Eden. Israel experiences 47,000 deaths, to be precise, because they chose to do what was right according to their own eyes. The God of Israel, Yahweh, is a righteous and wrathful God. And brothers and sisters, that does not just describe him in the book of Judges. That describes him in all 66 books of the Bible. When we talk about the attributes of who God is, he is all of his attributes all of the time. His wrath doesn't just magically disappear with the arrival of Christ. 
He is all wrathful in the New Testament, as he is all wrathful in the Old Testament. He is all loving and all gracious and all merciful in the Old Testament, the same way that he is in the New Testament. He is all of his attributes all of the time. But in the New Testament, when the Messiah, Jesus, came in the flesh, he came to save his people from their sins. Adam and Eve experienced a physical death because of their sin. And that physical death, brothers and sisters, had trickled down to all of humanity. You will die one day because we're all sinners. Guess what? Cancer is not what makes you die. Sin is what makes you die. It just happens to be one of the ways God uses as a consequence for the initial sin in Adam and Eve, which we have inherited because we have their nature. But the good news of the gospel is that in the New Testament, Jesus came to save his people from their sin. There is an even worse type of death than physical death, and it is spiritual death. And that is what Jesus came to save us from. In the death of Christ, brothers and sisters, we have four specific needs that are being met, which Wayne Grudem in his theology book lays out very clearly. They are this. Number one, we deserve to die as the penalty for our sin. But Christ died as the ultimate sacrifice for our sin. Number two, we deserve to bear God's wrath for our sin. And Jesus died as the propitiation for our sin, which means he removed the wrath of God, which should have been put on us, and he puts it on himself. Number three, we deserve separation from God because of our sin. But when Jesus came, he reconciles a people to his Father so that we can have relationship with him. And number four, we are in bondage to our sin. And Jesus redeems us. He purchases us. He buys us. And we are no longer in bondage to sin, but in bondage to Jesus. The book of Judges is full of death and destruction. But for those in Christ, physical death leads to spiritual life. That is the gospel. If you're in Christ today, physical death does not win, brothers and sisters. You will be with Christ for all of eternity. But for many people in Dothan, in this church, and around the world, physical death is coming, yes. But eternal death is also coming. But the gospel makes it very clear that any that repent of their sin and believe in faith, in Christ alone, can have eternal life. The answer, according to the book of Judges, is that when people do what is right in their own eyes, they will experience death as a result. But when we shift our eyes away from ourself, and we shift our eyes to Christ, and His perfect death on the cross, we 
can have spiritual life. Jesus died for sin. He died to turn away the wrath of God. He provides reconciliation, and he redeems us from bondage. And there's nothing, here's the best news, there's nothing we can do to achieve or earn that gift. It's received in faith. Repentance of sin and faith in Christ alone. And when physical death comes upon us, we will have spiritual life. This is why Paul can say, for to me, to live is Christ, but to die is what? Gain. Only for those in Jesus Christ. So the gospel is clear, even in this passage in Judges 20. The result of Israel's sin, physical death, Brothers and sisters, the result of our sin, physical death, yes, but spiritual life for those that are in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, as we approach this text, give us a spirit of humility. God, perhaps we haven't slaughtered our brothers or sisters in Christ. But we have sin in our hearts and in our minds, which we need to confess, which we need to repent of, which we need to rest completely on the blood of Jesus Christ to give us forgiveness of that sin. So humble us. Show us our sin. But help us to remember as we say regularly that there is more grace and there is more mercy in you than there is sin in us. So we rejoice today that freedom, redemption, propitiation are available through Christ alone. We ask all these things in his name. Amen. As we conclude our time together today, we're going to do what we do every single week and celebrate what Christ has done through the proclamation of his word. Maybe you'd like to come down to this altar and pray. If you'd like to talk about how you can know Jesus Christ, I'll be standing down here today as well. Let's stand together as we sing.